You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Go ahead and be finding your place there in John chapter 20. If you have your Bibles this morning, I love to worship with you. I love to sing with you. You look good this morning. I love this time of year, and I just want to uh, real quickly issue you a uh, pastoral admonition, maybe. Uh, Let's make sure that uh, these holidays are holy days and not hectic days, okay? Uh, I know there's a lot on everyone's calendar. There's plenty of places to be, things to do, all that kind of stuff. Uh, But don't miss uh, what this season is really all about, and uh, if you are not yet uh, involved in some type of a, uh, of a family worship time through this season. Uh, there are a lot of different resources available through our social media and through our website and all those things. Uh, it's not too late uh, for you to jump in on that and uh, to worship, worship Christ the Lord uh, during this season. Um, we do have special services that we want you to, to be a part of. And uh, one of the things that we haven't mentioned a whole lot yet is uh, we plan to have... Um, some space provided uh, over in the sanctuary on Christmas Eve, I think at 4.30, is that right? Four, three, three. Um, at 3 o'clock, uh, it's not going to be a service, but it will be a space provided for those uh, who find the holidays uh, kind of hard days. And that's, that's true for a lot of people. Uh, it's not that you don't enjoy the holidays and all those things, but in some respects, it's hard. Uh, and the reason it's hard is because uh, you're experiencing grief and you're working through grief and and, and what that means. And so uh, we'll have some folks there available to pray with you uh, and just some space to, uh, uh, to pray and uh, to, to process maybe uh, some of the things that you're experiencing in this season. Uh, and then we'll have two Christmas Eve candlelight services, both in uh, this room and then one service uh, on Christmas Day. And I'm so looking forward to that. Well, early this year, uh, Life Magazine re-released a special issue uh, of their magazine, and I have a uh, copy of, yeah, the, I, I need you to know that that's not an actual photo of Jesus, okay? Um, uh, in fact, I would suggest that Jesus probably didn't look like that. Um, he likely had much darker skin than that. That's a shock to some of you white folks, I don't know, but um, at any rate, um, The title there obviously says, Who Do You Say That I Am? I think that initially came out in 2018, and they re-released it, I think, in January of this year. Um, That's a question that Jesus asked his followers. Who do you say that I am? And it's amazing to me that some 2,000 years removed, the world in which we live is still asking that question, still wrestling with that question of, Who is this Jesus? Isn't it interesting that you can be involved in a conversation and you can can, uh, evoke the name of God and and, and people seem to be okay with that. But as soon as you interject Jesus, it's like something changes about the conversation with some people. It's just different. I'll never forget. I was pastoring in South Texas at the time. They called and asked me if I would pray at the dedication of a new hospital. And uh, one of the people that was in charge of this event came to me before uh, the, the, uh, the celebration or whatever, the dedication, and they suggested that I not pray in Jesus' name. 
I was a little taken back by that, to be quite honest with you. And I said, so let me get this right. Like, you've invited a Christian pastor to come pray at this event, and you're suggesting that I not pray in the name of the one who I've given my life to. I mean, I can't do that. Like, it was just amazing to me that in that context, I think they felt like it would maybe be offensive or something. Um, But it is interesting that uh, all these years later, we are still asking that question. Who is Jesus? Now, we're talking about a Jewish itinerant teacher that lived in a remote region, never held office, never traveled very far from his birthplace, had a three-year public ministry. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, still asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I would suggest to you this morning that in this life, that is the most important question that you can ask and answer. There are a lot of important questions today, but none more important than that question. Who is Jesus? And to make it even more personal, who is Jesus to you? That's why Jesus, when he initially asked his followers that question, he made it personal. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Why is it such an important question? It's because he made such overarching claims. His life was too influential. It was too formational on human history to ignore. I mean, we divide time by by, by the existence, the earthly existence of Jesus Christ. You can't ignore him. You can't just compartmentalize him. His claims don't allow you to do that. You you can't just say he was good because a merely good man doesn't claim to have created you. If I walked up here this morning and I said, oh, by the way, folks, I created you, you would all be like, what in the world, pastor? You might want to check your blood sugar. Something's off. Right? So so you can't just say he was good or, or that he was just a teacher or he founded a religion His claims and the reality of what happened in his life just won't let you do that. And at the same time, be intellectually honest. You have to reckon with who he really is. Everybody's got to answer the question, who is Jesus? Here's the thing. Because of his claims, you can't land in the mushy middle. A lot of people try to. In fact, in 1936, Watchman Nee made a similar claim in a book that he wrote entitled Normal Christian Faith. Uh, You may have heard uh, something similar um, attributed to C.S. Lewis. Others have have essentially approached it this way. He says, a person who claims to be God must belong to one of three categories. First, if he claims to be God, and yet in fact is not, he has to be a madman or a lunatic. Second, if he is neither God nor a lunatic, then he has to be a liar, deceiving others by his lie. And third, if he is neither of these, then he must be God. You can only choose one of those three possibilities. Now, some would say, no, some choose to say that he's just a legend. He's a legendary figure of some sort. He's a figment of some people's imagination. He's make-believe and all that. Those people really are struggling with intellectual honesty because there is clear evidence. Even uh, even secular historians, archaeologists, and different ones would say, yes, this, this man Jesus did actually exist. But if you do not believe that he is God, then you have to consider him a madman. If you cannot take him for either of the two, then you have to take him for a liar. 
The claims of Jesus and about Jesus are so radical, so wonderful, so comprehensive, so cosmic in nature that you have to investigate them. That's why I've entitled this series of messages, Person of Interest. And you may be here this morning and, and maybe you know about Jesus, maybe you've uh, studied some of Jesus, uh, you're familiar with his teachings, you're familiar enough with the Bible to kind of know who he was and some of the things that he did and said, and as we make our way through the Gospel of John, which we'll be in for much of uh, this next year, 2023, together, uh, I'm sure that there will be some familiar passages. It's there that we find uh, the, the verse of Scripture that is probably best known uh, even to those who wouldn't consider themselves religious, John chapter 3, verse 16. Sometimes what we forget is that those words were said in the context of a conversation that Jesus was having with a religious ruler of the day, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. I heard one preacher describe that, uh, that, that uh, conversation as the initial Nick at night. Okay, He says Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he's asking about truth and life, all these sorts of things. And it was in that context that Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The claims of Jesus have to be examined. And the beautiful thing is that the more you investigate Jesus, the more you, you investigate his claims, the more you discover that that which is too good to be true is actually true. That's what's so wonderful about the book of John. We're starting a new sermon series this morning in the Gospel of John. So if this is your first Sunday, you picked a great Sunday uh, to be here. Uh, th this Gospel is a masterpiece of storytelling. Uh, man, I guess as much as anybody, I, I love a story. Uh, it's charming in its simplicity. It's challenging in its depth. John uses such elementary Greek uh, in his Holy Spirit-inspired account of Jesus' life and ministry that it was the first book that we uh, translated in Greek 1. At the same time, philosophers and theologians spend lifetimes trying to fully comprehend the profound truths that John presents here in this gospel. Martin Luther marveled over John's mixture of simplicity and depth by saying this, I have never read a book written in simpler words than this one, and yet the words are inexpressible. So if you're familiar with the Bible, then you know that we are studying one of the four Gospels. The four Gospels are found uh, in the, at the beginning of what we call the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, maybe you've wondered... Why, why do we have four biographies of Jesus when one could have done the job? In reality, we don't have four Gospels. In reality, we have one Gospel from four perspectives. We have one biography from four witnesses, with each writer coming from a different vantage point. In, in these first four books of our New Testament, we have four albums, as it were, of Christ's life created by individuals who highlight different and yet crucial themes. And so as we start this series, I want us to maybe unpack that just a little bit. Let's consider Matthew and his gospel for a moment. Matthew was a Jewish disciple of Jesus who earned his living as a tax collector. Wouldn't have been the most popular guy in town, especially to some people, because he was an official of the Roman government. 
He writes his biography for, uh, of Jesus from a Hebrew point of view, emphasizing the rights of Jesus as Messiah and legitimate king of Israel. Now remember, there are a lot of Jewish people in that day who were hoping, praying, believing that this Messiah who they were longing for, looking for, was going to come and what? Set up a earthly kingdom and overthrow Roman rule. That's what they wanted. So this would have resonated with many of those. He traces Christ's genealogy to Abraham through King David, and his main theme is that the Messiah has come. Mark was not one of the twelve. He was the son of a follower named Mary and a close associate of Barnabas and Paul and Peter. He presents Christ from a very practical, action-oriented point of view. His, his biography is mostly a narrative that is frequently punctuated with the phrase, and immediately. In the old King James, it's the word straightway, and straightway. You see that a lot in Mark's writing. Mark's gospel shows Jesus to be a no-nonsense God-man who came from heaven to complete a task. His main theme is that the Son of God came to seek and to serve and to save. Luke. Luke was a physician, probably born and reared in Macedonia. He was a Gentile, not a Jew. Doesn't write to the spiritually privileged Jew or to the politically privileged Roman of that day. He writes to the common Greek, most of whom had no power, no wealth, little hope. Luke's gospel highlights the humanity of Jesus, often using the title the Son of Man and giving details about his humble birth. It's there that we typically go for the traditional Christmas story and certainly we'll go there uh, over these next few weeks uh, as, we, uh, as we celebrate the Lord's birth talks about his ordinary boyhood, his compassion for the marginalized. Luke's genealogy traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam. His main theme, the Son of Man, came to redeem sinful humanity. So we typically call those first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels. That means to see the same thing. John's Gospel is a little different. John certainly knew of the other synoptic Gospels and probably taught from them before deciding under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the biography of Jesus remained incomplete. The Christian world knew Jesus as King of the Jews, Jesus as the suffering servant, Jesus as the Son of Man, but there was a need for the theme, Jesus as the Son of God. The Gospel of John doesn't provide a genealogy. It illustrates the fact that deity has no beginning. In fact, you're probably familiar with the first few verses of John's Gospel, and we'll be there next week, Lord willing. In the beginning is how it starts. Was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. So you don't see any genealogy in John's Gospel. Uh, John offers no childhood details. He bypasses Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, his transfiguration on the mountain, his commissioning of the disciples after his resurrection and his ascension from earth. Instead, John writes from a more philosophical, theological perspective. He places his emphasis on the miracles of Jesus, which he calls signs. For John, these miracles point to the supernatural nature of Jesus' ministry. The Word had become flesh. To give all of humanity every reason to believe and to leave us with, with no excuse for unbelief. His main theme is the man we know as Jesus is God on earth. 
As we make our way through John's gospel, we will literally be looking God in the face. Some have described Jesus in his incarnation as God with skin on. I think it was Max Lucado who saw you say he, he moved into the neighborhood, right? And so as we look at the four gospels, we see Matthew. Matthew says, this is the Messiah, the king, worship him. Mark says, this is the suffering servant, follow him. Luke says, this is the sinless son of man, emulate him. And John says, this is the son of God. God in human flesh, believe in him. Believe in him. So let's look together once again at verses 30 and 31 of John chapter 20. Uh, We're not skipping over uh, chapters 1 through 20. Uh, We're going to get back there, but I want us to introduce this series in a little different way by looking at what is really uh, John's thesis here. If you ever took an English composition class, uh, you very likely heard uh, the, the, the term thesis And you were taught that it's important to have a thesis statement. This is the purpose for your writing. That's exactly what John does here in these two verses of of chapter 20. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, there's so much more that I could have written here. So much more. But these are written. I've written what I've written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John makes it clear that he's not writing here just to inform us or to entertain us. We could summarize John's thesis in one word, believe. Believe. He says, I've written this book, including these particular accounts, so that you might believe. John witnessed nearly three years of stories and sermons and conversations. He was part of Jesus' inner circle of Peter, James, and John, but he didn't include them all. Couldn't do that. He selected certain ones, the ones that would help us believe. One of the things you need to know about the cultural context of John's day is it's not a lot different from the postmodern world in which we live. There seems to be a lot of confusion today, right? I mean, every time you turn on the news, things are confusing. People are saying, this is truth. And someone over here says, no, this is truth. And someone over here says, this is truth. And, and people are saying, well, how about you do your truth and I'll do my truth? And can we really know truth? And well, the same thing was true in the first century when John was writing. You had basically two groups in that day. You had what were called the Epicureans and you had the Stoics. And they had these conflicting views about truth and how we relate to truth and how the truth impacts our lives and how we should live out our lives. And so, as you can imagine, the Stoics were pretty pretty rigid folks, right? Because we can't really know and understand the truth, so so what we do is uh, we come up with our own morality, so to speak. And then you had over here the Epicureans. They were the people who would have had a bumper sticker that was like YOLO. You only live once. If it feels good, do it. If we can't really know and understand the truth, then just live it up, man. Go for the gusto. And so you you had these conflicting views in that day, much like we have in our day. People wrestling and grappling with what, what is really the truth? Can we know the truth? Is there such a thing as absolute truth? And so the current religious culture in America, it's interesting, loves to talk about belief and believing And and those spiritual buzzwords are often used generically, and and as a result, they end up lacking real meaning. So contemporary spirituality trumpets not belief in an object 
or in a person, but rather belief in belief. It goes like this. It doesn't matter who you believe or what you believe. All that matters is that you believe. That is belief in belief. And, and kind of the high priest of this thinking, oddly enough, was a talk show host by the name of Oprah Winfrey for a long time. It was like, it really doesn't matter what you believe or who you believe, as long as you believe, by golly. That, that sounds amazing, right? But it just doesn't work. It leads to more confusion is what it does. John's gospel doesn't call us to believe in belief. That's not what he's doing here. Or to put our faith in faith itself. His teaching on belief is much deeper. It's more robust. It's infinitely more life-giving than any modern pop culture philosophy. In the course of 21 chapters, John will essentially answer three questions for us. And I want us to consider those today before we fully embark upon this study of John's gospel together. The three questions are this. What do we need to believe? What does it mean to believe? And why do we need to believe? So let's look at the first one. What do we need to believe? If John writes here in his thesis statement, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Here's my purpose. These are written so that you may believe what is it that we are to believe? Well, he answers that right here in verse number 31. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Well, Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? You know, Jesus probably would have been uh, identified more frequently as Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the carpenter's son. Uh, they didn't use surnames quite like we do today, and so... Understand that Christ is a title, okay? It's also not a cuss word, okay? Christ is a title, and John tells us early on in his gospel what it means. In chapter 1, he records an encounter between two brothers, Andrew and Simon Peter. Andrew has just seen Jesus, and he runs to find his brother Simon, and he tells his brother, he says, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. It's in chapter 1, verse 41. Christ is the title that's synonymous with Messiah. And Messiah is a term with roots in the Old Testament that run deep. The Old Testament focuses on one called Messiah whom God would send. And by the time Jesus came on the scene physically, the nation of Israel had been waiting for centuries for Messiah to come. And so as we walk through the Gospel of John together, we'll see this expectant climate that Jesus entered. He came to a people who were waiting for Christ, for uh, the Messiah. And when John identifies Jesus as the Christ, he's not saying that a person just needs to acknowledge that Jesus is the one called Messiah but that one must believe that Jesus is the one who will fulfill all the promises God made to his people. The promises of God tie the entire Old Testament together, all of Scripture together for that matter, and, and they all center on a person. Understand this, the Old Testament is not a collection of stories, but really one story. It's a single story of God creating man, man rebelling against God, God sending his son, the Messiah, Jesus, to reconcile man, sinful man, back to himself. And John is saying, you must believe that Jesus is that person. He's that person. Jesus is the promise keeper. He's the fulfillment of all these promises that you've seen. 
All of God's promises come true in him, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you say, well, what are some of these promises that you're talking about, Pastor Mike? Well, the first promise is found in Genesis chapter 3. It's there that we find what's often called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first mention of the gospel. Mankind has just sinned there, as you know, in Genesis chapter 3 against God. Adam and Eve are learning about the consequences of their sin. And in the midst of their punishment, God promises to send a son born from the seed of a woman who would fix everything that sin had broken. We're told there that he would crush the head of the serpent. You will bruise his heel, his heel but you will cr- he will crush your head. That's the gospel. As early as Genesis chapter 3. In Psalm chapter 2, we find the promise, uh, a promise that the Christ will end injustice and rebellion. Kings and leaders oppress people and make a mockery of justice. But the Christ, the Messiah, will come to put an end to their reign. He will judge them for their wickedness, and only those who run to him will find mercy. In Isaiah 53... We find the promise there of a suffering servant, God's servant, the Christ, will be perfectly righteous. He will be the only person who never sins, but he will be punished and killed. He will willingly offer his perfect life as the payment for our sins. He takes our punishment so that we can be declared innocent, justified. So when John says that we need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, he is making a sweeping statement. This is huge. We need to believe that Jesus is the one who will fix all that's been broken. The one who will end tyranny and oppression. The one who will reign forever as king of kings and lord of lords. And the one who gave his life so that those of us who are guilty, which is all of us, can be forgiven and reconciled to holy God. He's that person. We also need to believe here, he says, that Jesus is the son of God. He's divine. John not only makes this claim that Jesus is the promised Messiah, but he's the son of God. He is God. Only someone divine could do all that God promised in the Old Testament. Only someone divine could be trusted with the absolute power and authority promised in the Messiah. Only someone divine could be the perfect sacrifice and the payment for the sins of the world. If Jesus were not divine, then he could not be the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made. So, what do we need to believe? That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of of God. What about that second question? What exactly does it mean to believe? We use the word believe in a lot of different ways. Someone can ask us, is the weather supposed to be nice outside today? We answer, well, I believe it's supposed to be warm. It's supposed to warm up. We really mean, I think, or I have heard, or I have no idea, but it would certainly be nice. In school, we're taught certain facts about history and physics and and those sorts of things. So we believe those facts. In that sense, believe means we hold it to be true. But we have no real attachment to it. If someone presents us or shows us different evidence, then we're willing to change our minds. The kind of belief to which John calls us looks much different than that. Is that what he's talking about? In fact, the Greek word translated believe appears 98 times in John's gospel, multiple times in each chapter. But what does it mean to believe? 
to believe. Does it mean to believe that Jesus was a historical figure? Does it mean to accept the fact that a man named Jesus lived at some point in in human history? Does it mean to admire him or to emulate him or to take up his revolutionary cause? Does it mean to have warm feelings about him or to devote time and energy in order to please him? You see, another important aspect of John's call to belief is that we are invited to believe in Jesus Christ, the person, not merely his message, not just his teachings, his example, his challenge to live in a certain way. We are called first and foremost to believe in him. So my scripture says, he that hath the son hath life. This was the intellectual and the moral crisis that was presented to people of all kinds in John's writing here. Many of whom responded with belief, with complete trust. So the Greek term pistuo is actually uh, the word for belief here. It means to acknowledge the truth as truth. So when I say that I believe the book of John, I believe the gospel of John, I'm saying that I accept its content as truth. It's truth. Pastuo means to trust, to rely upon, to have confidence in something or someone. So when I say that I believe in Jesus Christ, I declare that I trust him fully. I rely upon him. I have placed my complete confidence in him. Everything that I know about life itself and whatever occurs after death depends on his claims about himself and how I must respond to his offer of grace and forgiveness. Staking my life on this. Imagine that you're on a hike through a a beautiful mountain pass. And on your hike, you you begin to approach the edge of a cliff that that drops a thousand feet to the canyon floor below. The only way to uh, to continue on your walk on your hike is to walk across a bridge from one side of the cliff to the other. And as you stand there in that moment, it's one thing to say, I believe that bridge can hold my weight as I walk across this great chasm. It's something altogether different to actually start walking across the bridge. We see this every day in everyday life. We just don't think about it. When you walked in the room today and you sat down on that chair, you were exhibiting a form of belief, a trust that that chair was in fact going to hold you up. And I'm thankful to say, as best I can tell, nobody hit the floor, right? It wasn't too, too long ago that our staff went over here. That's back when there was a little coffee shop over here called Kyrie's. Some of y'all might remember that. We went over there to have a little staff meeting one day, and uh, at that time, uh, our, our children's director, she sat in, in one particular chair there in the, in the coffee shop, and it kind of creaked, and it scared her a little bit, uh, which sort of been a clue to me, um, but I said, how about, how about I'll take that chair and you move over here. Uh, that, that moment changed my day, okay? I'm just going to tell you right now, because... I sat down on the chair that creaked under her weight. Trust me, I probably weigh twice as much as she does or did or whatever. And uh, sure enough, I mean, sipping on my coffee, we're chatting. All of a sudden, I sense this pop, 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 and boom, down I went. Okay, just to be clear, the chair was faulty before I ever sat in it, okay? Um, I I was trusting the fact that this chair was going to hold me up, and obviously, it failed me. See... It's something altogether different to actually start walking across that bridge. The former is a kind of belief that is based on intellectual adherence to a possible outcome. The latter is actually placing one's trust in the bridge. 
John didn't write his gospel just so that we could know facts about Jesus' life. No, he wrote his gospel so that we could know facts about who Jesus is and what he was sent to do, and in response, trust him completely. Trust him completely. And that leads to our third question. Why do we need to believe? Why is it so important what we believe about Jesus? I mean, we all know people who would say they don't. Or they certainly don't believe in Jesus in the way that we do or the way that we've come to understand it from God's word. Why is it so important? Why do we need to believe? One of the dominant themes of John's gospel is our need for life. For life. And it's always connected to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Go back to John 3.16 for a moment. What does it say? God so loved the world... That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, believes in him, should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Eternal life. That's why we often say here, Jesus did not come into this world, live a perfect sinless life, die a substitutionary death, conquer death, ascend back to the Father, so that our lives on this earth could be better. That's not the primary reason he came. Jesus did not come and die to make good people better. He came to make dead people alive. That's that's what we see here in John's gospel. Think about it. We're going to see in chapter 1, verse number 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In chapter 5, verse 24, he says, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. In chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, I am, he says, the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the what? And the life. The life. The life we need, spiritual, eternal life, comes through belief in Jesus Christ alone. But that life doesn't come to us like a package delivered by UPS. It's not a transaction in which we believe in Jesus, then he hands us our life at the front door and walks away. There are a lot of people who mistakenly have that view of God. That he kind of set this whole thing in motion, but now he's sitting out there somewhere on the rim of the universe, indifferent to what happens with his creation. It's totally foreign to them, this concept of God desiring to have a relationship with us through the person of Jesus Christ. That blows their mind. But that's, in fact, what we see here. You see, as as we learned in our study of Galatians, life in Christ is described as adoption. What a great picture that is, because when a child is adopted, the significance of that adoption is not a piece of paper that can be placed in a file somewhere or framed and hung on the wall. The real meaning of adoption is that that individual is brought into relationship with a family that is now his own. (laughs) His existence is tied up with these new family members. They sleep in the same house. They sit at the same table and eat meals together. They exchange gifts at Christmas. They cry together when a loved one dies. They, They pass the flu around to one another. Adoption is not just an exchange. It's a new relationship. It's the beginning of a new life. 
And life in Christ is being drawn into an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. Far too many people sitting in churches today who are satisfied to think that they're, they've got their fire insurance, and that's pretty much the extent of it. So th- their Christian experience is basically just kind of going through the motions. I'm good to go because back in vacation Bible school, I prayed that prayer. That's great. If you don't have a growing, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't fully understand what Jesus has done for you and what, he, what he, the relationship he wants to have with you. life in Christ is being drawn into this relationship with him. It, it's illustrated for the disciples here in John's gospel, and we'll get there later, by comparing their relationship to a vine with branches that are connected to the vine. The, the, the branch doesn't get just a one-time infusion of life from the vine. No, it gets daily nourishment from its connection to the vine. And if something were to cut off the branch from the vine, the branch would die. So when we truly believe, we truly begin to live, to live. John didn't structure his gospel uh, haphazardly here. In fact, it's fascinating to me as I've been preparing for this series of messages and kind of laying out the framework for the series. As you study this gospel together, I think you'll find that the narrative unfolds much like the Christian life itself. The initial intriguing introduction to the Savior quickly leads to an invitation to believe and to follow. Understanding will come in time. And as we witness his power, as we hear his teaching, as we experience life in his presence, our understanding deepens and our confidence grows. Gradually, we mature in our faith that we never get beyond the need for grace. We call that sanctification. So imagine yourself stepping out onto that bridge once again. You can just imagine that as you take those first initial steps, and maybe you begin to feel it sway a little bit under your feet, you're just like, I don't know if this is a good decision. I don't know if I, it's still a little scary. But I would imagine that the more steps you take and the closer you get to the, to the other side, you would find, hey, I can trust I think this, this is going to hold me up. I, th- I think I'm going to be able to get to the other side. And, and maybe that's something that you can identify with in your spiritual journey. Maybe you can point to a time in your life. Maybe for some of you it was years ago. Maybe for some of you it was months ago or even weeks ago. Like I, I took that initial step of faith whereby I turned from my sin to faith in Jesus Christ. I, I still got a lot I don't understand. I mean, people ask me sometimes, like, do, do you fully understand the gospel? I don't. (laughs) I mean, it's mind-blowing when you really think about it. But the more we grow in our relationship with him, the the more we we draw nourishment from the vine, the more we begin to to understand who God is and the relationship that he wants to have with us. So you've got that initial introduction to Christ. And then as we we witness his power and all these things, gradually we begin to mature and grow into Christ-likeness. Hopefully, if you're here today and your testimony is one of faith in Jesus Christ, you would say, yes, pastor, I'm a believer of the type that you're talking about today. I don't just believe in some facts about Jesus. or I'm talking, I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Hopefully, you can say by the grace of God, you are not what you once were. That you're not responding in anger like you once did. That you're not making foolish, immature decisions like you once did. Not yet perfected. No, you're not yet glorified. 
But by the grace of God, you're growing in Christ-likeness every day. I think it's interesting that a, a guy named Dr. David Beck, he proposes that John intentionally portrays anonymous characters in the writing of his gospel. I think this is interesting. Including himself. Because John refers to himself in his writing of this gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that interesting? Dr. Beck suggested that it's a way of drawing the reader into the narrative so that he or she might participate in the story. So I have a pretty good idea. If you hang with us through this series of messages in John's gospel, at some point you're going you're gonna to sit here and you're going to go, you know what? That blind man, that's me. That's me. Because I once was blind, but now I see. That lame man, that's me. That, that one is brought back to life, that's me. That's my story. As we begin to see Jesus and his life and his ministry and his, the way that he touched people and the way that he cared and loved, what do we see? We see more than just facts. Oh, it's not like reading a biography about Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. No. We're talking about life itself. The gospel is no mere biography. The gospel of John is an invitation to believe in the Son of God, to become his disciple, to deepen our understanding of his identity and his mission, to grow in maturity and to join him on mission. So with that, let's embark on a study of John's gospel. And as John the Baptist said, the forerunner of Jesus. Let's together behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Jesus. If we could for just a moment bow our heads and close our eyes. This time for us is a time of decision. I've often said that everybody in the room today makes a decision in one form or another. You can make the decision to take what you've heard and experienced through God's holy word, by his holy spirit. You can take it and believe it, apply it to your life, or you can choose to ignore it. why James wrote the danger of just being hearers of the word but not doers of the word so the question today is really very simple do you believe do you believe and I'm not asking if you believe in Jesus as a historical figure I'm not asking if you believe of his teachings he was a revolutionary leader the founder of a religion? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you know him as your Savior and your Lord? Can you point to a time in your life when you came to understand that you were a sinner in need of a Savior, that there was nothing you could do to save yourself, even on your best day? You can't be good enough. 
And the only one who was and could be good enough, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came and lived among us in the flesh, died in our place, so that we, as spiritually dead individuals, without hope, could be made alive. That's the Jesus that John presents here as a person of interest, for sure. If you're here today and you cannot say, Pastor, I'm certain of my relationship with God through Jesus Christ because I have turned from my sin to faith in Christ. And I, I rejoice with you if that's your testimony. If not, I would love to sit down with you over a cup of coffee or chat with you after the service today. Open God's word with you and show you how you can know that you're in a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ not because of anything you've done or ever could do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And I hope and pray that those of you who have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ will strive in every way, not just in this context as we study John's gospel together, but at every opportunity to grow in your relationship with him, to become more like your Savior and your Lord. You'll be on mission for him and for his glory alone. Father, today I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you desire and have made it possible for us to have relationship with you, to know you intimately, to be known by you. Lord, I thank you for reconciliation that's made possible through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray for that one here today who may be struggling, seeking, searching, wondering, maybe hoping that somehow, some way, they could in and of themselves be good enough. Lord, help them to know and understand what your word tells us, that it is by grace alone that we're saved. So, Lord, we thank you. I pray that those who've placed their faith and trust in you would strive in every way, at every opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness. To live the life that you enable us to live in Christ and in Christ alone. Lord, that's our prayer today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.